All right, welcome to another installment of Enjoying Some Coffee. Um, today I have uh, with me Mars. Mars is my partner, um, both uh, personally and professionally. So we are the two that operate and run this business and make sure that um, the, the trains run on time. Uh, today we're gonna be drinking um, a coffee from Costa Rica. This coffee is pretty special because I think it's the only coffee that we've bought year after year since we've been roasting coffee. So this coffee is from Costa Rica. Um, it is from the Las Lajas micro mill. Um, it is a full natural. So every year we've roasted this coffee um, or had this coffee in the shop, it has been different types of alternative process. It hasn't always been the full natural. Sometimes it's honey processed and there are different colors. Sometimes it has been the full natural and then there are also different, different designations for the full natural too. So this full natural this year is the Perla Negra and they also have an Alma Negra uh, full natural. And we've had that in years past. For the honey processed stuff they have, uh, I haven't seen any yellow, but I think they have a white and a, and, I mean a, a red and a black. Um, but for us, I feel like we lucked into this coffee. Initially, um, it was when we were early and first started roasting, and I think the reputation of this micro mill um, hadn't established itself as firmly as it has um, today. Um, there's a little bit of a, a story about this mill. It may be a little ap apocryphal, but this is another coffee that we bring in through Cafe Imports. And this is, I guess, the 10th year that this mill has been making these full naturals or, or alternative natural coffees. So the first year, apparently the story goes that there wasn't, um, so this is 10 years ago, that there wasn't enough water or a main broke or something where they had uh, not the, their full access to water to wash the coffees. So they dried them naturally and they couldn't initially find, uh, find a buyer, but the principals at Cafe Imports, uh, I guess, came across the coffee, tasted it, and they're like, yeah, we want this. And in a way, maybe it kind of saved their butt for that season because it was a little unexpected, and they were able to find a buyer for a coffee that they processed in a way that they didn't initially intend. So um, they've been um, selling them coffee ever since. And we got involved about five years ago, um, not directly with the farm, but through the importer. Uh, it's a bit of a pricey coffee for us, but I think we might have got the first batch as an open bag when we had our small two and a half kilogram roaster. So it was a big surprise for us. I felt like uh, early on in, in our development, it was easy for us to get excited about alternative processed coffees. We had a lot more natural processed coffees. Um, of late, we have not had as many natural processed coffees, I would say, but always for this. Essentially, when we buy this coffee, I ask Cafe Imports to book us into the next year's crop. So I'm even before that crop is, uh, you know, blooming or anything, I've already expressed our interest that we want uh, coffee from that, that mill. Um, some years, we just get what we get, and other years we get to be a little more selective. This year we actually got to be selective, and we got the Perla Negra, the full natural. And so I think it's a pretty exciting coffee. Um, we've just brewed it, and we've just poured ourselves some 
uh, small pours of the coffee. Um, we brewed it according to our sort of standard recipe, if you will. 25 grams of coffee and 350 grams of water. Um, we brewed it in a V60 and O2, and we brewed it on our pour steady. And just recently, we uh, reevaluated the instruction set for the pour steady. So the pour steady, for people that don't know this, is basically a robot arm that simulates uh, the movement of a kettle, of the gooseneck kettle. And so we've basically, uh, well, we haven't basically anything. We, uh, we, we just recently changed the instruction set for that. And so the pour is set up to provide more pulses to be closer to the bloom line. And as a result of that, we've had to coarsen up the grind setting for all the coffees. So I think what this has done for us is that it has made the coffees sweeter because the grind size is a little bit bigger than it was before. So the theory is that we're getting maybe fewer fines in there. So we're not extracting as much as the stuff that you don't want to extract. And our beds have actually been quite flat and almost no uh, coffee thickness along the walls of the filter. Um, that's a little bit more than you probably are interested in. But Mars has been enjoying this a little bit more than me. I'm talking, getting parched, and uh, definitely need some water. But it's good. It's very, it's very sweet. Very, yeah. But it's clean for a natural. Sometimes naturals are heavier. Yeah. In body, I guess. Yeah, I would agree. I think oftentimes I find naturals to be kind of briny, kind of black olive. Mm -hmm. very minerally and and heavier like as you said on the palate so a little more viscous mm -hmm. um, and this coffee the way we have it set up right now um, I do agree with you I find it to be sweet right away just as it cools a little bit you don't even really have to wait for it to cool off that much and that that hard fermenty note that you find in natural processed coffees is largely absent Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a juicier, kind of softer mouthfeel in terms of it doesn't really hit you hard or harshly. I think that's a little bit to do with, obviously it's an exceptional coffee the way we get it, but I think it's a little bit to do with our change in the brew recipe. I think what we were doing before would bring out that classic kind of harder, fermenty, riny, maybe a little briny even, but this is just like... To me, it's just the aromatics alone. It's a little like, almost like dark mixed berries and juicy, and it has just a really lovely sweet finish. Mm -hmm. you, you definitely like, I feel from start to finish, no matter what temperature this coffee is, you feel like you're having something special. You're not, you're not like hunting for it. It's, it, you definitely note that it's different. And you know, a, you know, a good hallmark from different would be it's not Folgers, but you know, I think we've advanced beyond that kind of comparison, but you definitely notice that it's, it's not a washed coffee. Um, it's not an East African coffee. It's just got this, you know, it's like a very beautiful, ripe, developed fruit. So would you say there's brininess in here? I never see that as a tasting note, and it doesn't seem like it's bad, but it's never, I guess, 
advertise? Like? Yeah, I, I think I think brininess is in every natural, and I think there's the, you call it black olive, but there's a minerality. You call it briny, meaning salt, um, and I think not acknowledging it, you know, you want to accentuate the positive, and I think for this coffee, the way we have it set up, the thing that I find so amazing is that it doesn't have that brininess. Like it is just, it's super lush. Mm -hmm. And it was this coffee that really caused me to start to think about kind of how we were brewing the instruction set, if you will, whether you do it by a robot or by a person, how do we change it to create that lushness? And this really, for me, this question or quest goes back to when I was judging the Brewers' Cup this year in Seattle, and a lot of people brought naturals and kind of really exotic, pricey coffees, and honestly, as a judge, I kind of got tired of that fermenty note, like, oh, this is, yeah, another natural. I would, can I have a wash coffee? And it's not being a classicist, because a lot of people are kind of against naturals anyways. They're, they're, you know, they prefer washed coffees because they're subtler, they don't have that briny note. But it wasn't being a classicist, it's just that, that those, those cups and that processing has a profile and it's always recognizable. But there was one particular cup I had, and this was a guy named Jacob White, I think. He, I think he placed third uh, nationally. Uh, he's from Bird Rock, a very you know, nice, polite individual, but he did a lot with his water chemistry. He also brought a baller coffee. I think it was a Panama Esmeralda natural. Um, but that coffee was so clean the way he brewed it. And I just attribute it to being his messing around with the water chemistry um, to kind of eliminate that brininess, to not extract it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like when I approached brewing and just changing the brew recipe for all our coffees, it was that idea, like how do, how do I create that that cup to me that's just like a, a bouquet of, of fresh fruit, of mixed berries, without that savory, again, I black... Know, you're always looking to... Black olive. ...prevent savory side of coffee, even though some people like it. Yes, I, to I totally agree with that. I, and I think I have, I think you, you kind of nailed that. I sometimes have blinders on in that, one, I'm not, I'm, I'm never purposely or intentionally trying to introduce savory into the cup. And I think I probably willfully downplay notes of savory when I can find other notes. And I've tasted coffee with a number of people. And when I do so repeatedly, there are some people that I notice that their palate is predisposed to savory notes. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's good, and I say this kind of jokingly, for me, I, I often don't like to taste coffee with those people because I really don't want to hear that something tastes savory. Now, they're not saying, you know, it tastes like stewed peas or green beans or anything like that, so it's not like, it's not an underdeveloped note. It's just that sometimes I feel like people are able to identify savory more clearly than they are other notes, and either I'm the other way in terms of the genetics of my tongue or the I've just psychologically willed myself to ignore parts of the cup. Um, but I, I, I think you totally hit it on the head. People, even you know, members of our staff, our regulars, people that generally find savory, I, I take that as a, 
like a personal failure. Like, okay, I gotta rethink this coffee, I gotta rethink the extraction, I gotta rethink, you know, how I book coffees, I gotta rethink how we roasted it. Um, so, I mean, to me... But I'm, Kenyans are like naturally savory, yeah, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. You can't take the tomato out of Kenyans. I guess some Kenyans, even more recently, have been less tomato-y. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a good point. I think, you know, that is a cup profile that is probably in between 60 to 80%, maybe even more cups of Kenya that we have or even have out, not just in the shop. But I think that's a profile that people don't talk about. Or if they talk about it, they try and say sweet tomato instead of just tomato. Right. And so we try and book coffees that present less tomato and more grapefruity, but I still feel there's, because of that processing or the varietals, that there is this savory character. And, it, and that, that's the terroir. It's like a Malbec is spicy, or you know, certain grapes are sweeter or, or drier. Um, so that's just inherent in the starting material, and you can't, you, you can't change the genetics. You know, you'd have to basically blend that coffee with something else or, you know, make a frap drink or something to kind of hide it. And that so... Would be, that would be an odd thing to do with a Kenyan. Yeah, and I, th I totally agree with that. I remember one time, a place that we shall not name, we were uh, having breakfast and they had a Kenyan on an espresso and they put it in milk. And it was super savory and super off-putting. Remember, it was like five years ago we went... Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And it was like, it was very like, mm, it was a questionable choice because <laughs> it was so obviously incongruent with the creaminess of the milk. Right. And it wasn't about brightness, it was about savory and then the sweetness of like a steamed and stretched kind of whole milk. Right. So, but yeah, so I think for me, you know, not to really uh, skip over the details of this cup, I, this cup for me, um, this farm and where it came from and the varietals, it's not that exotic. It's not high elevation. It's about 1,400 meters above sea level, so it's not that high. It's a, a Katwai and Couture. So again, more varietals that have probably selected or planted to avoid disease like leaf rust and, and, and to produce more um, cherries. But the processing and the thoughtfulness and, and presumably, you know, if you believe all the marketing material, the way in which this husband and wife team manage the staff in terms of making sure that they uh, are only picking the ripest cherries and making sure that education is very clear so that the, and measuring bricks and the sort of weight of the technology and, and the detail they bring to it produces an exceptional cup. And that isn't necessarily due to the, the terroir or the varietals alone, but it's, a, 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 in my opinion, a largely due to the thoughtful and detailed post-harvest processing. And, and I think this year, it's a super exceptional cup because of the lush fruitness without that kind of funky fermenty, sometimes even like I've used this term before, baby, baby diaper. diaper. Yeah, that, that like note that's like, oh my God, but yet it tastes so good, but why does it smell so weird? Um, yeah, it has been funky in the past. 
Yeah. I don't know if we bought it or if it was just cupped, but it's definitely, it's funny that that's a, that is, that's a note. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, I feel like we buy, I feel like the last natural we had that had a, a strong baby diaper note was maybe that, like, we had, like, a natural Nicaragua. It was a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. but that had a, a very strong fermenty baby diaper note. I think this coffee, again, this is, um, they've had 10 years to kind of perfect this. Um, at the compulsory competition last year in Knoxville, I think it was, I felt that I saw a number of competitors with this coffee, whether they get it through cafe imports or directly through the farm, I'm not sure, but... Um, so this, this coffee is, um, one of our customers actually told us also that it was one of the top 25 kind of mills coffees uh, in the world right now, shortlisted. So, you know, I would, I, I guess I couldn't put this coffee, well, I, maybe I would personally, but it's not as sought after as La Palma and El Toucan or 90 plus coffee or just sought after maybe on trend, but it is not far behind. And in my opinion, it is equal, if not better, than some of those coffees that I've, that I've had uh, coming out of, out of those farms or, or those processes. Do they um, only do naturals? It seems like they do varying degrees of nat natural I, processing. I think yes. I think they, from what I can tell, again, I haven't been to the farm, um, but it seems like their sweet spot right now is in all processing coffee. So either full naturals and then making sort of designations within that or these different uh, colors of honey processed coffee. So yellow being essentially the least honey processed, the closer to wash, and a black or red being probably closer to full natural but not a full natural. Um, so I think that's their sweet spot. I don't see, and I don't really look for it, so maybe that's why I don't see it, but I don't see a lot of washed coffees coming out of the mill. And I think they get the, their price premium on these alternative processed coffees. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a husband and wife team. Uh, I don't think they bought the farm from scratch. I think there's some inherited or there's some generational aspect to the farm. But, but they've keyed into the consuming market. And whether it was intentional or by accident, um, they've hit upon something. And then they've hit upon a relationship, you know, obviously cafe imports. Um, I think anyone in the industry who's roasting and buying coffee at a kind of shop roastery level has some familiarity with cafe imports and understands, uh, you know, some of the, the quality uh, and the product they get. Um, and so I think that relationship probably is, is symbiotic. Um, good exposure. Cafe imports used to sponsor a lot of the competitions. Um, and so a lot of the competitors would be you know, call up Joe Morocco or somebody and say, hey, I need a great coffee. And, you know, he's gonna hook you up with a great coffee and this is this is a great coffee and so I'm sure just word gets out and that feeds back into this couple that's, you know, doing this tremendous job at their mill. Um, but I enjoy this coffee. I wait for this coffee every year. I think you enjoy it. Yeah. I think the only thing I don't enjoy about it is the price we pay for it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'm sure people could say that about a lot of things, but it's, in, in my opinion, it's worth it. And it is definitely very, very special. Um, this year we got two pallets worth um, in anticipation of 
opening in Nashville and sharing a special coffee in a new market. So that's a lot. So it, it's, it's a lot, but I, I, I talked to you and you said yes. You said it was okay. So, but uh, yeah. So, anyways, Mars and I, um, we basically started this business with no business starting this business. I mean, we, we don't have. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. We don't have coffee experience. Neither of us worked in cafes at any point in our lives. Um, neither of us. Uh, really did any uh, food or hospitality in our lives. I mean, you I had a, a, I was a hostess. Yeah. You, when I was in my tw early in my twenties in New York, but I, I, I was terrible at it. I don't know why I did that. Well, I don't know if anyone's natural at it, but yeah, you were a hostess. I remember at that place that became Peels, right? Yes, it became a, a good restaurant. Yeah. I think I think the restaurant that that I was a hostess for it was kind of ahead of its time. I think it could have done well. Yeah, it was like a Thai? Korean Co Korean like barbecue. Yeah, or kind of but it was it was a sister restaurant to a restaurant in Soho that was doing well. That yeah. was like pretty famous. I forgot what it was called. But I think also for that neighborhood, things when you were a hostess there, things had not really pushed as far east in New York yeah. as they are now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there definitely wasn't that much foot traffic. And but. that's, that's at that place, so this is, I, I don't know if it's interesting, small world phenomenon, or maybe not, but it was that place that we ate lunch at one day at Peel's, so mm -hmm. it was the old it was where you were a hostess, mm -hmm. but it had turned over, and, mm -hmm. it was, and at the bar was uh, Aziz. Aziz Ansari? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was like, he, he did not have the fame he has. He was not on Parks and Rec. This was way back in the day. I think he was a stand-up comic. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, he was sitting next to me, and you were sitting on my right. He was sitting on my left, just eating lunch. And that was like before... That was before this this obsession with cell phones, where like everyone sits down, but yet you're checking out and you're kind of doing your own thing. And that was still like I feel like when you sat down, there was still like this engagement of the environment around you. And yeah, yeah, so, it's hard to. I, I guess it was like hard to do to just kind of like sit down, like by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> without a cell phone. Yeah. Like I don't know what I what I would do. Yeah. Well, you gotta eat lunch, but um, yeah, I do feel like there's this these these devices, and there's all kinds of science and stuff like that. But you know, there's um, there's an addictive aspect to them. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes cigarettes outside of the nic nicotine, the behavioral aspect is addictive. But they talk about just this having this ability to get this immediate feedback, so you don't have to ever play a long game. You know, mm -hmm. there's no waiting. Like, you're like, oh, I need stimulus. Okay, here it is. I get it right away. And, you, and it keeps getting higher and higher. And so it's, it is like a, I don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert on drugs, but it is, it is addictive because you keep looking for that stimulus over and over again. And it's just so easy. It's so easy to feel uncomfortable or just be like, okay, I'm going to wait for my food. Uh, I'm not going to make eye contact and scare people. And uh, I'm just going to look at my phone. <laughs> um, but anyway, so 
back to the story. We had no business starting this business. I don't even know if we necessarily picked a good corner, you know, in retrospect, but we were living in New York. We ended up by, uh, uh, selecting this spot, um, kind of essentially based on Zillow. I mean, we walked through it, obviously. We weren't that reckless, but without really knowing a lot about St. Louis. And right. so... And it's proximity to um, Cherokee Street. Yeah. Like it felt like something was going on in Cherokee Street. Yeah. I, th I think that's right. I think we did. We picked... We pick, sort of picked this area because we lived in Williamsburg for a while. And it had, the, at the time, you know, now Williamsburg in New York is different, but at the time it had this very DIY, you know, there were no, all the, all, like there was no, Nobu, you know, there were no big name kind of celebrity restaurant tours opening up in Williamsburg at the time. It was basically people priced off out of East Village slash Manhattan in Brooklyn, good train service generally. And so when we lived over there, yeah, it felt like, it felt like, you know, you fake it till you make it. You know, everybody's hustling, trying to like, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, but I may wait tables or whatever. And, and it, it felt a little bit like that. And I think Williamsburg changed so quickly and it's still changing. Manhattan's still changing so quickly because of the density that we kind of hoped that we could be part of that change happening here in St. Louis. Right. But change Not in St. Louis is not knowing that it doesn't change or it changes it's glacier oh yeah it's, it's like two steps forward one step back yes yeah one step forward two steps back yeah it could it could be oftentimes there's movement but at the end of the day the forward and backward movement just gets you back to the starting line so you know, I, I think when we started, there was not as many options on Cherokee Street as there are now. I think daytime retail is still somewhat challenged, although that seems to be slowly changing. But we saw a lot of sort of daytime businesses come and go. Like, they could have been sandwich places. They could have been, you know, uh, actual retail. Um, oh, there's that jewelry store yeah. and the bicycle place. And the bicycle place. And so there's... And so it sort of really the things that took hold were, were nightlife things, like bars, things that were open sort of, you know, after f four or five o'clock. But I feel like there is a little more density on that street that doesn't involve um, an event happening on that street. Like with Vista and some of the other places, I feel like there's just mm. naturally enough business on a regular basis right. to kind of support a little more. There's still the, um, the, the, the kind of taquerias and burrito places that are very strong and a number of new places have opened. So I feel like that's always been a draw. Um, and um, so yeah, stuff's happening. And I know that the developers that bought up a lot of property are, who were kind of DIY themselves, ha some of them have started buying up property in this corridor down to uh, Chippewa, and right. so there's and an opportunity. And we have spare no rib. Yeah, and now and now we have kind of, of like a pretty good fit across the street. Yeah, instead of a neighborhood bar. Yeah, oh, and then an Asian fusion place, which yeah. died a quick death. I yeah, think. kind of came and went. But yeah, so I mean, there's stuff happening, and it's observable if we look all the way back five and a half years. But it's five and a half years, and so it's a slow change and so that means that there were a, there were there were a lot of lean years there are still lean years there's still lean you know weeks and times but 
you know, early on it was so lean that the only way f that we really survived is the fact that you and I did everything, essentially. Right. I mean, you know, Matt came in pretty early, but you and I were here all the time. And, and we had to open every day. Yeah, we had to open, and you're not a morning person. I'm not really a morning person. That's the surprising thing. Like, owning a coffee shop, neither of us are mor morning people. And I like to look at coffee more as like this kind of treat. Late morning, going in the evening, like enjoying something of quality as opposed to, I, it's 6 a.m. and I need coffee. And so we've never really, just personally, never really set, set the shop up to, to do that, to be that, you know, I'm on my way, I gotta grab a cup of quick joe, and, um, but, and it was very difficult. It was tremendously difficult, it was tremendous hardship. There were other people that we saw that were couples that started businesses, or individuals that started businesses, maybe not with their significant other, but they did not stay together. And, I can think of two or three very easily, and if I push myself, I could probably think of more, but the strain and stress of doing this and then doing it together, is, it's, it's impossible. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't recommend No, it I wouldn't recommend it either, but at the same time, I'm glad we did it and we made it through it. And we're not really even through it. Opening Nashville is gonna basically be revisiting all that strain and stress again, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it because essentially you're working with somebody that I feel like, and this is just me personally, uh, but you know, you, you, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you just come home from a bad day at work, sometimes you're naturally disposed to unload on them. Everyone is in a relationship where you have a significant other that may act badly based on what happened during their day. Well, imagine that you have that interaction as a result of working with that person during your day, and then you finish your day with that person. So all those unresolved, all that whatever is still carried through. And it's not like, you know, Mars can't treat me like an employee and I can't treat her like an employee, so we can't basically just say, look, bright line rule, this is my way or the highway. And, you know, you can imagine how this could just go completely sideways. And oftentimes it did. I mean, you know, I think Mars, because she's not so much, I don't, I don't want to call her a people person, that's just a mischaracterization, but because maybe she's less inclined to be super chatty like me, if you've sort of listened to this podcast so far, I'm the only one talking most of the time, but she, she took a lot of tasks that were not only not sexy, but they just, they weren't, they're not, they're necessary, but not, fun like, like washing dishes yeah like doing the three compartment sink stuff before we had a dish sanitizer i mean you know all this stuff you know people like sell stuff nowadays by like putting on the bag like retail coffee like hand roasted or hand bagged or whatever but i mean you know that, that, to me that's a bit of exaggeration i don't know that that tips the scale for me one way or the other but i mean we had no like we Three compartment sink. I mean, that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, wash, rinse, sanitize, and whatever. All the bleach. And yes. all the bleach, all the clothes that you got <laughs> ruined. Like yeah, it's just like. I think I have a whole different wardrobe because everything just had like little dots, dots of bleach. Bleach, on it. yeah. So it's it's tremendously difficult, and I would say if you asked me like three years ago, 
I would say never do it. And, and probably Mars would say the same thing. It, you ask me now where we're at a point where we're, we're, we're both working as much, but we're doing different tasks that aren't in the cafe or in the roastery all the time. And so the tension isn't there. And so I would say now at this stage of growth where we are, I would totally recommend it because having a partner that helps carry the burden of the decision making, I think is completely invaluable. And especially if your skill sets are such or your interests are such that they're complementary overlaps instead of um, kind of conflictive overlaps. I, th I think that is also invaluable. Like I feel like I have more patience with people and you have more patience with things. <laughs> so like, you know, there's a lot of computer stuff I feel like involved now and I feel like a Luddite saying computer stuff. But if I can't turn it on and plug it in and it works right away, I melt down and you see me as like, oh, I'm stupid, I'm not doing this. this is, we're just not doing it anymore. And you have the patience to be like, okay, just let me be quiet here. I'm going to figure it out. But I feel like at the same time, if we have a customer or a guest or just an issue, maybe it's not even a customer, but just because of the neighborhood, interfacing with people, it's like you kind of have the same thing. You're kind of like, I'll give you one, one free question. And then it's like if it starts like, you know, if it doesn't turn on and plug in and go together, like my attitude with stuff, you're like, all right, that, that, we're done. And well, just because I don't have as deep a coffee knowledge, so all my coffee knowledge is pretty, pretty shallow. I don't, you know, I don't pull shots. I can brew, um, but I'm not involved in buying or roasting. So when people have questions like that, I just, I guess it's frustrating to me. Yeah. And I just prefer someone who has a little bit deeper insight to, yeah. to talk about the coffee. Yeah, I mean, I see that. I think, like, I don't know. I don't know that we did a lot of thinking before we opened this up, <laughs> honestly, going back to that point. So I think it's like, I never, I think it, for me personally in New York, I wanted to do something. It wasn't really coffee. I think it was initially chocolate, but the risk was too high. It was too expensive. Oh, yeah, we were going to do coffee and chocolate. Yeah. And then with Mike, it was going to be motorcycles Mot somehow got folded in there. Yeah. And so even to this day, I feel like what we do coffee-wise, maybe now, if we were disciplined, we could maybe start to fold chocolate in, but we just haven't built the space, so we don't have the facility to do that. But yeah, so in New York, that was kind of like, that was a fantasy, but it was a ridiculous fantasy because we just weren't able to do it. It's just too expensive in New York. And coming here in, in St. Louis, you know, there was just so many other things going on that it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We'll see. We still have, you know, the rest of our lives to figure out what was a good idea and a bad idea. But, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever said, hey, do you want to be a coffee person? You know what I mean? Do you want to do customer service and talk coffee? And so I know you really like coffee. I know you enjoy it and I know I enjoy drinking coffee with you and when we go out and we travel it is you most of the time that is willing to drink coffee when I'm snobby when I'm like ah oh, this is a diner it's gonna be in a diner setting yeah it's gonna be crappy or even when we're traveling you're just like well I don't know I'll try it and it's through you trying those cups that I'm like I remember one time we were at Denny's 
and you got coffee and uh, and and I drank it and I was like, you know what, this isn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like you know what, this is total garbage. Are we at the courtesy one night? That coffee isn't bad for two fifty a cup. I don't yeah. know if it's bottomless, but um, yeah. But then other times it's like you go to this cute out of the way place and you just realize that they their coffee is just you know, or their food probably is just not fresh. It's yeah. probably from U.S. foods. They yeah. don't care. And the coffee tastes like just coffee-flavored water is what I get a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that. But I think I think it's, it's you who helps, in that case, you know, keep me well-versed in what's going on in coffee that isn't like you know, a place where they're trying to execute at a specialty coffee level or outwardly be pretentious or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and, I, and I think that's good that you, you're, you're not snarky about it. You're just like, yeah, I need coffee. I'm going to try it. Maybe good, maybe <laughs> not. Coffee. Yeah. I right? never considered myself addicted to coffee, but now I think I definitely need it. So I have to look for it everywhere when I travel. But do you need it, is it because you get a headache or do you need it because there's something about the ritual and just the experience of, because I feel like I need it from that aspect, like, but I need it, I need it to taste this good, in my opinion, like this Costa Rica. And I, you don't always get it that good, but that's, that's what I crave. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's an elevated experience that not everyone is offering, but that's what I crave. I will get a headache because I do drink a lot of caffeine, but I don't think I try and, I never, when I travel, I never drink coffee just to not get a headache. I'll just be like, well, I'll have a headache for a day, but then I'll be okay and I'm not gonna have bad coffee. It's kind of I don't how think I about getting a headache. I just do it out of, out of habit. Yeah, like ritual though, right? It's, it's like precious. And I think coffee is a luxury, I mean, as, crazy and convoluted as a path it takes to get here and the process it's a long link chain and um i think it's definitely much deeper there's so much more to it than when we than when we first started when we, before we started roasting yep because on the surface it's like well it's just coffee some coffee's good some coffee's not good yeah and when you start realizing like all the different flavors and countries that produce it and how different coffees can be. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think when we, again, <laughs> when we started this, we, it's not like we did five years with a specialty coffee company and we're like, you know what, I can do it better. I want to own my own thing one day. Um, like I feel like some members of the staff, you know, I feel like one day they'll get to a point where they'll be like, hey, I want to do my own thing and I'm kind of learning from you or I'm, 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 I'm co-creating an experience with this brand so I can go start my own thing. And I think when we started, we were, it was about the ritual, I think, that we missed in New York. Right through Ninth Street. Yeah. And that was like this elevated thing. And we didn't have to think about where that espresso in the <laughs> cappuccino or <laughs> wherever it came from. Yeah, it was never like the origin. Yeah, where's, where's oh the, what's the roast level, all that stuff. So we've come so far, but in a way we haven't come anywhere at all except where we started. And it was a thoughtful, 
crafted intentional beverage that was exceptional. And so we have sort of followed that model, but we're trying to do it with no milk. Right. <laughs> and you know, more of the more of the details. Now we don't get as nerdy, I don't want to say nerdy, but we don't we don't have the ability because we're small and I think it doesn't in general fascinate us as much as the cup itself to drill down into all the agronomy and all the details about the farm and every individual involved in the process of the farm. I feel like my thinking and hopefully your thinking a little bit is is that we buy expensive coffee because it is of quality and that in general ties directly back to people that have some degree of affluency like this husband and wife team at Las Lajas who make an exceptional product. And so as a result of creating an exceptional product and then expecting a certain dollar amount per pound each year, they have to treat their pickers well. They have to educate them well. Getting good people, no matter what industry you're in, is very difficult. And so hopefully that wealth starts to spread because they, this husband and wife team, just like you and I, can't produce every cup and can't produce an exceptional experience alone. We have to invite people in to do that. And so that then requires us, if we want to keep those people, to treat them well and with respect and pay them well so that they can continue to be professionals. And so I think a farm or a mill like Las Hajas will do that too. And so hopefully, because I can't be in Costa Rica and I can't be in Kenya and I can't be in all these places and you can't either as much as you travel to Africa. But, um, but by having these relationships, and maybe this is an Adam Smith invisible hand kind of hand wavy explanation. It's like, if I have an exceptional co coffee, that's what I want to talk about to the individual. And we will have enough information to understand that hopefully we're not being exploitive or we're not, we're not paying into a negative chain, a negative uh, cycle. Uh, but I, I, you know, I can't tell you how this couple treats every employee that works for them. I can't tell you the hourly rate that every employee that works for them gets paid. I trust in the fact that they need to create an exceptional product for us to pay what we pay, which is several factors above the commodity grade market. Which is how much? Depends. Uh, I don't know what it is today, but I think it's been oscillating between like $1.23 and $1.45, depending on forecast and things like that. So that's the C market. And that price essentially gets factored into every contract right. of every coffee that's sold. So we buy specialty coffee. So those are coffees that have to score 80 points or higher. So pretty much most of the specialty coffee gets a premium price on top of the C market. So probably a coffee that's in the low 80s, it might not get that great of premium price. And so it might creep up to like, you know, two, two and a half, something like that. But how we have bought coffee or how we have asked our importing partners or exporting partners to buy coffee or help us select coffee is, I want coffee that makes me seem like a better roaster than I am. And that's it. I mean, you can't, it's just like when you make a, a salad in the summertime with tomatoes and things in season, it's super awesome. And when you try and do it in winter here in the Midwest, it's not terrible, but it's, it's not what you remember the summer 
um, harvest or materials being. And same with coffee. And so, um, you know, this coffee is well over $6 for us. So it's a very expensive coffee for us to buy just to bring in. And then, you know, for anyone that in, understands or under, knows a little bit about roasting, when you roast coffee, you lose mass. So it's not pound in and pound out. Depending on how dark you roast it, you can lose as little as maybe 11 or 12 percent, and that's probably pushing it pretty hard, I guess. Um, or as much as like 25 percent if you're going to really take it deep in the second crack. So we don't take it deep in the second crack, and I think our average losses are probably between 12 and 15, depending on the coffee, the origin, the moisture content in the coffee, and all that. Um, and then you have to, you know, pay for labor and and um, not only to roast it, but then labor to package it or prepare it in the shop. And so the expenses on coffee add up very quickly. And most of the time, I feel like coffee in a retail environment, it's about numbers. Um, and I'll just give you an example. I mean, we just, this is totally unrelated, but I spoke to someone at Yelp the other day. You know, they're really aggressive at sales calling and they they're want so you aggressive. they're super aggressive they're, they're one they're one of the most aggressive uh business vendors that that i feel like call us i mean regularly yeah and so and i think for a long time they had a really bad reputation as you would buy something so if somebody does a search for coffee or even if somebody does a search for some coffee you can ha you can pay to have your coffee brand come up above that particular search so but what they would do is they, would, I guess they would create these really maybe hard to get out of agreements. And, um, and so they got a little bit of bad rep. So now I guess they've revised that and they're selling a different product that is kind of more like Facebook. You can promote a, a thing and it's kind of a flat fee and you can get in and out depending on what you want to do. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but they charge 69 cents per click, something like that. Wow. So, you know, let's say our average ticket is between five to ten dollars. So sixty-nine cents, that's you know, most of any profit that's gonna go back to the business yep. uh, when you account for overhead. So that just shows you that in terms of what we're selling, that most of the most coffee shop models that aren't roasteries have to be based on value. So you have to do large numbers for it to make up because the ticket price is so small and you gotta balance that against labor. And so the more experience you, you provide, or the better experience you provide, or the more thoughtful, or the more skillful, or the more uh, involved drinks or products you serve, the more you have to pay labor. So most of the time, it's really just about numbers and that's how you become I feel like successful in coffee unless you're a roastery and then that's a different business model altogether and so we're kind of a hybrid we're kind of in between and um, yeah I, I don't know where why I went down that road I've totally blanked on that but anyways yeah I, we're talking I, about the price of coffee yeah going back to the price of coffee and the, this idea of like how we how we buy and how we present the coffee we typically don't like I'm sure some, most everyone who's listening has been to other coffee shops where you get like this deep drill down about the farm or glossy photos of the farm or maybe supposedly of the farm. Like, you know, uh, Cafe Imports. A lot of the pages that, you, that they have that list the lot number 
oftentimes there will be pictures of the farm or the mill and I will see other roasteries using those so it's like you can you can basically say it's almost and no one's saying this directly but if I put up a photo of a farmer that I took from the Cafe Imports website because it's a coffee I bought so they're kind of offering that and I presented that it would be a suggestion that I had some relationship. Had some relationship. So because we don't, we're not, we're not big enough to have a relationship. And so big enough typically means like we will go to Origin and we will meet farmers and we will work with the, the uh, co-op or the people that are exporting or importing the coffees and we will book coffees directly from them. But to be big enough to be like, I'm going to buy directly from this farm every year, I feel like it takes a couple of things. One, it takes an importer or exporter with vision to let you do that. Or it takes you, you roasting enough volume so you can fill a container or a half container, shipping container of coffee. And that's really how most coffee's bought and sold uh, because that's the cheapest way to do it. If you put it on a plane or you don't fill a container, it becomes very, very expensive. So. We, we, we could probably, I think we do enough volume every year that we could buy a container or two, but it would be like we would only have Guatemalan coffee or we would only have Costa Rican coffee. So to be able to offer variety and variability, we have to pick up a bag here, a bag there. And the market is such that we couldn't do that without these relationships with these importers like Cafe Imports or Trabaco or uh, Carvel or Atlas or anybody else that we bought coffee for from. And... Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated, multifaceted market, much like anything. And it's complicated more so because we, none of that coffee is grown in the States. So there's, there's no direct... Com- uh, tr- except for Hawaii. Except for Hawaii, which right. Which they just sell in Hawaii. That's... It seems like most of the time because of tourists. Well, a lot of... I'm not sure if this is correct, but it seems like um, the way Central American coffees are bought and sold there's a more higher chance that you could have a direct relationship, whereas that's not so true in the African coffees. I yes. Guess just because of the distance, or because governments are more involved in the coffee industry in Africa. Right. Well, I think especially Ethiopia, which is sold through an exchange where the government regulates that exchange, that is absolutely true, and you can get waivers, and I guess they've softened that so you can buy directly from a farm. But I... I totally agree with that. Even the importers here in the States, they don't directly have their own employees in Africa. They have relationships. So it'll be a mill or a sales agent, if you will, that has that relationship to the U.S. firm. And the U.S. firm will say, hey, I'm interested in buying two containers worth of coffee. And I'm, I'm looking for coffees that score X or that cup X, and this is what I, this is why I'm willing to pay for them, or something like that. So it's a lot of c- contractual stuff. And you know, initially I thought U.S. importers were kind of like boots on the ground everywhere, buying, tasting, cupping. But that's not it. There's a lot of relationship stuff. There's a lot of agents that aren't employees that are sending samples. People are cupping and, bo- and saying, yes, we'll do this, or they just have contractual power to do it. There are companies that may be a little bigger that are trying to get in that game, but they've been doing commodity-grade coffee, and they're trying to change the direction of some of their mills, like maybe Bowl Cafe. But, yeah, I think for the most part, 
um, it would be easier because you know we can get to like Bogota or somewhere in Central America, fly from St. Louis to Miami, two hours somewhere in Central America, and you know if I spoke Spanish or you know there was an expat down there, or somebody or a farmer that spoke English, we could find a way to piggyback on a container to get that coffee here in the States. Um, but that takes time. You know, we started from nothing. We started roasting, figured that out, and now we've you know, done a number of origin trips. I feel like we get a little more sophisticated, but... Um, I think I, most of the origin trips are, that you've done are in Central America? South, South and Central America. South and Central, yeah, yeah. So I have not done any African trips. And the funny thing is you've been to the African growing countries but done none, no real coffee trips. Right, it's just a safari. And it's, I feel like African coffees are a bit of a mystery. Like you don't really see farmers because they all seem to go to a cooperative. They're yeah. All kind of. Yeah. They're like subsistence, small estate kind of farmers. I totally agree with that. And just to name drop, but um, dark matter, uh, as far as I'm, as far as I know right now, they've changed their model so that they are not bringing in any African coffees, because they want to make sure that everything they buy, they know where their dollars go. So most of their coffees are from somewhere in Central America or some spots in South America. So places they can go directly, and they book the full containers and bring them out. And I think that is a a kind of recent development. I think they brought back some African coffees for like their 10th anniversary because they wanted to reintroduce or kind of get nostalgic about some blends. But that's a pretty bold thing to do, I think, for, for you to basically kind of limit your offering based on a principle. And I mean, I love African coffees. I, I think it would be, I would be very sad not to have African coffees in the shop. And so that's a very principled stance, but it is true. I do feel like, for the most part, maybe unless you're in Europe, because it does seem like the European, those trade routes are older, so Europeans might have more. Like, you know, I feel like I see like Tim Wendable or other people in Kenya and those relationships more than I do oftentimes in the States because it's just harder for us to get there, where I feel like the importers in the States have better trade routes and relationships with Central and South American farmers because it's, you know, it's a six-hour flight. Yeah. It's easy. So it's direct flight. It's it can be a direct flight, flight. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just it's super, super interesting. And um, I think this sort of goes, we're rounding out this topic is kind of like you're talking about, you know, why you're not a people person and what, and what people are looking for. And we started to talk about, well, what, what we're trying to present in terms of what people are looking for. And so we're not trying to borrow uh, experiences we don't have, and we're relying on the quality of the cup and our relationships with our partners, the people that are working for the importers or the exporters. And in my opinion, they have the most insider information. So if they say they're cupping a smoking coffee, I don't, as long as I trust them, as long as you know I have a relationship with them, if they say it's smoking, there's no reason I should doubt that they're not smoking because if it's not, and I feel like we've been not burned, but we've had one not good experience. And I won't name names, but we haven't bought coffee from them again. And that was, that was because I think they were in a rush to sell us coffee and, and maybe didn't realize the long game. And so I think people that 
give us great coffee, I feel like we will always believe them, whether they're at one import or another, if they say it's a great cup and it's a great cup. I mean, they know more than us. We're here in the Midwest. We're right in the middle of the country. It's like, they see all these coffees come in. Why wouldn't I be like, look, dude, I trust you. Book that coffee. We'll buy it. Mm -hmm. And so if we have a hole in our lineup, that's, I feel like that's how we work. And then sometimes, you know, we are like, we're a little more purposeful and deliberate. Like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Yemen. Like if we could get that. That's probably a bad example. Yeah. That's you know, talk about prices and yeah. countries you probably don't want to buy from. Right now, yeah. Just because, I mean, we would like to, but just, again, the, political reasons. yeah, geopolitics is so complicated that even here in the States, you know, we're not even buying anything, but if you, you know, try and kind of peel the onion of politics, it's so too complicated. And then you add layers of differences and cultures and moral mores and whatever it's like even more impossible and then layer in a civil war or maybe not a civil war i don't know i don't have any business questioning a lot of those things and so i don't know it's yeah that's a weird rabbit hole it's too far yeah it's it's totally doesn't fit this podcast so um anyways the other thing we wanted to kind of round out i think we're kind of reaching the the patience and and length that most people can stomach but since i do have mars here and you know we're we've kind of experienced all the highs and lows together i think one of the things and in light of what happened today actually i thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about the kind of things that you can never prepare for or maybe you can prepare for them or maybe you can't but today we uh woke up uh came down checked out things and realized that we had essentially no water pressure. Mm-hmm. So quickly, Lots of I, running around. Yeah. So quickly, <laughs> I I panicked and I shut all the equipment off because I'm afraid all the heating elements going to burn out. I was on the phone to the water department. So first, I was like, "Oh crap! Did we not pay the bill? What, what's going on?" So I, I ran everywhere, got one of our old bills from the water department, called them right away. Their office was closed, but as I was trying to figure out how to get the emergency number. I basically kicked the mattress. Mars is, you know, sleep is like quarter quarter after six. I like Matt's coming. Make sure you tell him not to open because we have no water pressure. She's like, wow, and gets dressed and runs down and and does that. And so, anyways, we find out that there's a water main that broke. I guess it's a downtown St. Louis. Yeah, it's a transmission line. So big, 36 inches, downtown St. Louis. Two miles away. Two miles away. And uh, he's the guy I finally get a hold of is like, yeah, that's why you have no pressure. And I, I'm, so I'm inclined to believe him, right? But then the more people I tell this story to, so Lasad from across the street, Sparrow Rib comes in, other people come in, Mars even is like, really? And then so I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm being naive. I didn't really get all the facts. So I call him back and he's like, yes, that main feeds like all the way down to Anheuser-Busch. So yeah, I'm glad I'm not responsible for that because screwing Anheuser-Busch would be a big mistake. Yeah, right. So we just, I mean, we we then started Googling news reports and we found out all this detail. And so, yeah, there was like chaos. I guess it happened at 4.30. 
they weren't saying when they were going to have it done. Then they said they were going to have it done, and then they had to. There was another valve or something they had to turn. And then they said they couldn't turn that off, so it became this indefinite thing. So basically, Mars and I had to make this call. Like, all right, we're going to be closed today. It sucks. Zero business. You know, call the other person that's supposed to come in. Like, don't come in. And then you know, Matt. Matt's like, well, what do I do? I was just like, stay busy. So he cleans the whole shop today, like puts on the surgical gloves, wipes down every chair, you know, sweeps under the, the smallest corners. And about 11.30 or 12 o'clock, the water came back. Right. And I'm so, just glad that it wasn't because I didn't pay the water bill, yes. which has happened. Yes. So that exactly right. So the, the, the point of the story is, is like, you know, this sucks. We lost a day of revenue. One employee was unable to work. And so, but you, you can't really prepare for it. I guess you're going to have a, enough capital as a cushion to deal with these ups and downs. Um, but we've had other instances where the surprise has been much harsher and much more unpleasant. We've had instances where, you know, you get so busy, you're so fatigued that we didn't send a bill in, and there was one time we didn't pay the water bill and they shut the, the water off. But it wasn't because we didn't have money, it's just because we forgot and, you know, it's... It wasn't an online... Yeah, it wasn't an online thing. It wasn't like an Amazon Prime thing. So as long as we can, like, put credit card numbers in and do, like, this sort of banking stuff, routing stuff, that's easy. But as soon as it becomes paper, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a degree Mail of... Face. Yeah, it becomes, like, a degree of difficulty uh, higher. But we've had instances where we had our lateral go out. And so this is a pretty documented experience, so I'll be pretty quick about this. But this was early in. This was within the first two years. Mm -hmm. And so essentially we were operating very leanly. We didn't have much of a capital cushion because we invested everything in just to get the place open. You know, Mars and I were pretty much the only one working besides Matt. I mean... It, even when Matt was working, I was still every day in the shop, and Mars was every day in the shop at some level. Um, and we noticed this funky smell. And so we had the plumber who's done all the plumbing in the building come out, and, and we had somebody come out and snake it, and they basically said, your line has failed. So we're like, oh, that sucks. So we get money together to get it fixed, and we were fortunate that the, the stack and everything was pretty close to the end of the building. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what they had to cut into the basement and the concrete slab was not super long. Right. So they go down there and they start, you know, cutting and it's loud and unpleasant, and, you know, the concrete saw. And the guy who's, uh, his name's Jason, um, who's done all the plumbing in here, really nice guy, he comes up and he starts to explain what happened to him down there. So he was cutting the slab. So basically, the way it works out is there is a wall somewhere or structure, and there may be two of them, where all the pipes that run to your sewer, they exist somewhere. And if you have a basement with a slab on it, they probably run underneath that slab until they get to your outside lateral. And so those things that run vertically are called stacks. And um, so what he was doing is basically cutting from our floor drain in the basement to our stack to basically the exterior lateral where that was going to go all that old pipe comes up they put new pipe down put cement in seal it up so as he was doing that you want to come over just scoot over you're you're on sorry sun's coming down 
as he was doing that, he was cutting close to the foundation wall, and as he cut that slab and started hitting it, the foundation wall fell. So basically, the slab was the only thing holding up the foundation because all underneath of that had washed away. It hollowed out. So it was like a septic field. But so it washed away because it was all dookie. It was urine and everyone that came in here for the first 18 months, <laughs> there were some of you back there. It was so gross. But anyways, as the wall fell, he's like, I, he stopped all work and because it's foundation, right? He didn't want the building falling on him, things like that. So he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm out of here. I mean, you know, he wasn't that rude, but that, that was essentially it. So then we start, we're like, okay, well, we got to fix the foundation first. So we call a foundation guy. And foundations, I feel like, in general, they're mystery and super expensive, or maybe not. Guy came in, he's like, yeah, I can fix this. Didn't give us a price, but he's like, you got to clean all this mess up so I can evaluate it. So that mess is that, you know, septic. And uh, anyways, it got to the point where the pricing was getting such that we didn't have any money and we weren't going to be able to do it and we didn't have access to capital and we were closed so we weren't bringing any money in and and basically everything stopped and the only way we were really able to get around this not around it through it is mike who uh, had the motorcycle in the shop who's moved about two miles north of here basically just said we'll do it ourselves mm -hmm. and to me that to me somebody who's just spent his whole life in academics that is not the first thought i would have we'll, not just, at all. we'll just do it ourselves and and that 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 is the difference between us being in business and not being in business because he's like we'll just do it ourselves and you know he did most of it and then he was able to bring in people that were trade people that he knew that were able to get us through the things that we didn't know to do and we cut all that out laid pipe we had the plumber come in and make sure the pitch and everything worked out had a concrete person come in uh jeff who was mike's longtime friend from way back in high school did the concrete work and we had the money we had available to do the original job we had to pay the outside people mm -hmm. who had to dig the lateral with a backhoe. It was like 18 feet deep, and so that was something that we couldn't do. But anyways, it got done. But it was we were like closed for like almost three weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was very rough because we live upstairs, so that means we didn't have plumbing. Yeah. And it was a very, very tough time. <gasps> it was very gross. It was just very dispiriting it was you know after everything we've been through it's it's just these things where there's like this cosmic unfairness or maybe it feels like unfairness but you can't really blame anyone and it's just like you really have to roll up your sleeves and get through it and it's and now it's gosh it's better i mean yeah remember how our basement used to smell oh god the basement used to smell so bad yeah no it's great it's like it's it's a hundred percent better and but these unknowns and and you know you can't anticipate this like we've been you know saving and planning and plotting to develop the second shop in nashville 
and you know budgeting and like line iteming and like this cost this and this will this will be in here and then I was in a car accident mm -hmm. and then we we were out of car so a, a lot a significant amount of money had to be used to buy another used car to get us so that we can still operate this business so it's just all these things that you can't anticipate and that can get you down and then you couple that on on top of the mood of the city or the disposition of the city so this seems a little bit disjointed but sometimes being in st louis and where we are it oftentimes feels like the city doesn't have a plan to combat the ills that face it and so the struggle that you do as an independent business and entrepreneur you almost feel like nobody cares mm -hmm. why should i keep fighting through it and and I think that's that's when it's important to like have a partner like Mars to be be like she can be down I can be up vice versa but the way for us to lift us through this and problem solve even if it's not about depression or elation it's about all right well let's think our way through this let's be rational let's don't overreact I mean and it's it's helpful to have somebody else pull you back from the edge or yeah we overreact and our we either overreact or the calm one at different times yeah times. yeah and I think that's important it reminds me of that NPR thing we heard interview was called um, it's the English thing where the couple meet she gets pregnant it's called it's complicated or it was a one-night stand kind of thing. It had Princess Leia in it. Oh, catastrophe. Catastrophe. So she was doing like an interview, I guess she's creating another show, and, and they were talking about why couples made it or didn't make it. And she was saying that it's because they don't both decide at the same time to get divorced or to separate. Right. So usually one person will and the other person won't, so you sort of talk it back. So this isn't about that, but I feel like the business can be where you can be all doom and gloom, but the other person can be there to also not be like shoulder shrug, well, it's time to throw in the towel. It's time to like, all right, well, I don't want to quit yet. We've got too much invested, so let's figure this out. So it's, it's very helpful, I think, not to be alone and in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in be a business. I mean, I, I think it's also important not to dilute the core of the decision power too much so i think it's very important not to have too many partners either right because then everybody's too polite yeah, so I then don't know how co-ops work our business co-ops i think they so yeah i think they that's when they you start to appoint a core group of people to make decisions mm -hmm. and you kind of surrender that power until they make a bad decision then you want to try and take it all back but i think yeah i think having too many people is like having a table of six and only ordering one slice of dessert. Everybody tries a little bit, but there'll always be a little left over, and that little slice typically never gets eaten until the server comes to take it away, and then somebody will lunge in and get it. Because everyone's too polite, everyone's too nice, and so I, I, I think you, you still have to be at a point where you can be, you can be fully expressive in that, sort of ownership structure without mm -hmm. being too deferential. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so 
the net net is the Las Lajas is awesome. Yeah. Never start a business with your partner unless Not you can never. unless you can get through those early years smoothly. Not never, but I mean, some people have personalities. Yeah. That I think. Yeah. I think I think clash. yeah. I wouldn't say never, but you know, just realize that it's way more difficult than you think it is, and it's not like, oh, we're, we're gonna be together all the time. It'll be great. I love you. You love me. It's not gonna be like that. And um, and uh, I don't know. Enjoy. Hopefully, you're not not too hot. And uh, and come by and grab a, a cup of uh, Las Lajas. Thanks, Mars. Thanks.